You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment. And I can tell you that you want to listen on to hear our voice from Canberra and what he has to say about population growth and economic growth and inflation and interest rates and all the things that make up our economy and how they impact the property market. Don't be too cute trying to finesse when the low point in the cycle is. If you find a house that you like, It is expensive, just take a deep breath, do it, and don't look at the price of anything in your suburb for another 10 years. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp, and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Stephen Kukulis, better known as the kook. Uh, Do you answer to Steve or the kook? All of the above. All right. Okay, well, your bio (laughs) describes you as one of Australia's leading economic visionaries, past chief economist of Citibank, heading global research in London for TD Securities and senior economic advisor to the Prime Minister. Which PM are we talking about We're talking Julia Gillard. We've had so many of late. Yes, we? we've got to be careful which one, but old Julia, it was about five year, five prime ministers ago. Well, I imagine that you would have been working pretty hard because she actually got a lot done as opposed she to did. the ones we've had she since, did. right? Yes, that's true. Uh, <laughs> ten months of my life that I'll never get back, but anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stephen's combination of both public and private sector experience provides an unparalleled insight into the opportunities and risks of today's economy and markets. And he's renowned for being able to turn complex economic analysis into terms mere mortals can understand, which is be very handy today. And in particular, in these times of uncertainty and media negativity, we'd love to hear his insights into what's driving the policy changes that are having such a great impact on our property market. Thank you for joining us today. An absolute pleasure. G'day, Coot. Good to see you again. Good to be here. <laughs> I really um, appreciate you giving us your time. Martin North came out on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago and they, you know, dramatised the property market was going to fall by 40% and you quite hilariously wrote a bit of a challenge to Martin. Can you tell us a bit more about what inspired you to write that? Look, I'm all for an open debate about economics and the property market. It is a complex area and the property market has been booming. That's the sort of starting point. However, and it's a really big however, I get very frustrated when people make grandiose claims uh, that they don't have any, as we say, skin in the game, that if it happens, well, they'll claim success. If it never happens in three years' time, we'll all have forgotten about it and they'll have had their moment of publicity. So I thought Mm. 40% in three years is the forecast. So I said to – so I sent him an email, I sent Martin an email and said, look – I'm willing to bet you, and I offered him very generous odds, six to one, oh. uh, that we would not see a fall of 35%. So I trimmed the fall, mm-hmm. made it very juicy in terms of six to one. Uh, would you be willing to take the bet? And he said he's not a betting person. So he he unfortunately rejected the bet. It was quite funny because all the media picked up on it and yes. there was a bit of an email chain back and forth. I was looking at another article 
I think it was, I can't remember exactly what paper it was in, but it was all the economists, a list of what their forecasts were for the future. And I think you were probably the, one of the most yeah. more pessimistic economists out there. Could you give us an idea of your thoughts going forward? You probably were looking at the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, the age mm-hmm. uh, survey at the start of the year. And I was pessimistic and I am pessimistic on house prices. So you might think, well, why am I sort of offering this challenge? Uh, it, it's because that the housing market decline is happening. We, it's, it's got further to run, but for a 35 or a 40% fall in house prices, you're talking some of the horrible situation that we saw during the global crisis in Ireland, Spain, parts of the UK and the US, and we don't have those fundamentals here. We're not that bad. So what we're having having to see is a, a price correction, I suppose, where we do see prices drop. We do see this tightening in credit having an impact, but a 40% fall, mm-hmm. not really, more likely 7 to 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of your um, parts on that was, you know, a lot of the, this was actually quite recent, so I'm not sure if it was that one, but um, you're, you, you were predicting that interest rates would be going down, but you were probably the only one, I think, out of the, the 30 economists that yes. was probably suggesting that. Yeah. I mean, you know, can you give us a bit more understanding of why yeah. you think that when everyone else thinks it's going up? Look, the Reserve Bank is saying it's going up too. They've said the next move is likely to be up. And of course, the, and, and God, well, they're the ones who said it. So you'd be have, you have to be pretty bold to go against it. But I, part of my experience was clouded by uh, when I was living in London, when the GFC hit. I remember looking out the window of the office one day in about 2008, I think it was, and there were people lining up at the Northern Rock Building Society, you know, the infamous Northern Rock, uh, and people had bags willing, uh, ready to withdraw their cash. A true bank run. And that frightened me very, very much. And that led to the sort of horrible situation in the UK that sort of spread through global markets. Now, that was the reason why I thought, well, we've got to sort of see how that sort of dynamic can play out here. And while we're not having that, as I mentioned, we're not having those big falls, we are having price falls. And the reason for the rate cut forecast is that we consumers are over half of the economy. Household spending is about 55% of GDP. So what we do with our money has a really big impact on jobs, inflation, the unemployment rate, these sorts of things. So if you think of a scenario where house prices were to fall, say, 10%, we've lost uh, somewhere around the order of uh, three quarters of a trillion dollars in wealth, if that happens. That's pretty significant for us Australians. At a time when we've also got very high levels of household debt, at a time when we've got very low levels of wages growth. So you think, well, how are consumers going to fund their spending? They can't do it through wages growth. We're not getting a decent wage increase. Can't do it through wealth accumulation because the housing market's falling and now just recently we've had the stock market coming off. So don't look at your wealth at the moment because it's not going to be a very good story. Mm. So you think, well, what's what's the economy going to look like into sort of 2019? And it looks as if it'll be pretty weak. And with inflation under control, the Reserve Bank, with a cash rate of 1.5%, yes, it's low, but they can trim rates not to rescue the consumer necessarily, although it would help, but also to try to allow the non-consumer parts of the economy, business investment, which is very dependent on interest rates, to pick up. And so the business investment side of the economy would pick up the slack that's going to be coming from we consumers not spending as much next year as we have in the last couple of years. So when the Reserve Bank comes out and says that interest rates are likely to go up, is that jawboning? Yes, it, it's, it is jawboning. The last thing 
not the last thing, one of the last things that they'd want to see is a rebound in house prices. So at the moment, mm. they're quite comfortable with this fall in yeah. house prices. We've seen Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe and other officials sort of saying that, you know, after the, such a big run-up in prices, that doubling basically in most cities uh, over the last five or six or seven years, a 5 or 10% falls neither here nor there. Mm. And, and that's true. And that's why I'm not as pessimistic as as others in, in the market in terms mm. of the house price decline. But uh, so they, they wouldn't want to see the discussion being, oh, lower interest rates, so that people, when they go to the next auction, yeah. say, well, I'm currently paying about 4%, but if there's a rate cut, I only pay 3.5%, so I'll bid an extra 20 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand on the house. So they're trying to avoid that euphoria in um, those animal spirits we economists like to talk about yep. when we're <laughs> judging how consumer behaviour reacts. And I think that's what they're trying to avoid by saying, don't get set for rate cuts because that would fuel that uh, optimism and euphoria that saw house prices boom so much. One of the m many levers that gets twiddled with, shall we say, <laughs> one of the many dials that gets twiddled with in the general uh, scheme of things in terms of politics and... Yes you know, just the macro forces that drive this economy. Now, you mentioned um, that we have different fundamentals in Australia versus what was going on when, you know, the GFC hit and, and you're looking at Greece and Spain and Ireland and all those yep. countries. Yep. What are some of those different? Yeah, there are several. First of all, that uh, our banks are better regulated, even though we're seeing the horror come out of the Royal <laughs> Commission uh, at the moment. They're not really systemic problems with our mortgage market. Yes, there's dodgy practices. Yes, the fees being charged on dead people and all these other really, really dreadful things. There's no question. But that's not a systemic problem with our banks that's going to cause the economy to roll over. So that's one thing. The other thing is that about 90 to 95% of all mortgages in Australia are floating and variable so that when the Reserve Bank does adjust interest rates, they're usually, not yep. always, usually passed on. Many of these other economies, UK, US in particular, have fixed have about 90% fixed rate. So even though the Federal Reserve may cut rates in the US, it's not passed on quite as quickly. It takes a little while for that to feed through into fixed rate mortgages. So that makes us different so that if we did have a crisis or something nasty came along, uh, the Reserve Bank could cut interest rates and consumers and businesses, for that matter, would very quickly get the benefit of those lower interest rates. So better regulated. We have a lot of floating rate uh, interest rates. And the other thing, which is which is a bit more um, at the periphery, I suppose, is that you know, we've been hearing a lot about the 10-year anniversary of the GFC in the last little while and the collapse of Lehman Brothers and these sorts of things. Yep. What was done when that hit 10 years ago is a really important lesson. So I dare say the Federal Treasury, who advised the government of the day, would say if we, if we started having the wheels fall off the economy, for example, they would do a similar thing, maybe not quite as aggressively, but they would ease fiscal policies. That is, spend some money in the economy or give some tax cuts or something like that to, to preserve our economy. That didn't happen in Ireland, Spain, the US to any significant extent. Oh, so you're saying not only would they drop interest rates and things like that, they would try to stimulate the economy through, you know, potentially bigger tax cuts, I guess. Bigger so. tax cuts or even, dare I say it, just cash handouts, give well, some money into the economy because it sort of worked. It's what and the Rudd government did, I mean, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and there were some issues with it, but they, they've they learnt from the things that went wrong. But for everything that went wrong, there are about 10 things that went right with that money. It was money in the economy. People spent it very, very quickly. And the economy sort of muddled through. It actually did... did 
reasonably well at the end of the day. So I think there'd be, they're the differences that I think, and, and it doesn't, you know, our economy's lucky in a sense too, and uh, this is for some people a bigger concern, is that we're linked to the fastest growing part of the world, Asia, in mm. particular China. We don't hear about that as much as we mm. used to, but it's still the case that 30% of our exports go to China alone, another 40% go to non-China, Asia. So that's Japan, India, mm. Thailand, Malaysia, and those other less big economies. But nonetheless, so, uh, 70% of all our exports are into Asia. If you look around the world's fastest growing regions, it's Asia. It still mm. is. That middle class issue that we used to hear a lot of discussion about, students coming here to study, having holidays here, they're buying our you know, agricultural commodities and these sorts of things, it's still very, very real. And if you actually look at how that might uh, save us or minimise any downturn, mm. it's still very, very real. And the fact that we've got a floating exchange rate, the Aussie dollar, if it were to fall, and it has already, but if it were to fall into the 60s, that gives our exporters a bit more of a competitive boost. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you talk about the Australian dollar there because it has fallen and it's, you know, down around 70, you know, at the moment. But, you know, if there was a bit of a housing market decline and our economy starts slowing down and we drop our interest rates, you know, is that and when other countries around the world are potentially lifting interest rates, you know, how would that kind of, would you know, that be a quite disastrous for our economy or? Uh, it, it wouldn't. It'd mean the dollar would fall sharply. Uh, it, well, it's already gone. Remember, it started the year about eighty cents or yep. seventy nine cents, and we're already down to seventy and a half or something yep. like that. So we've already fallen close to ten cents, um, and that's as the US has hiked interest rates and we haven't. Mm. So alone if we cut them, I dare say we'd be in the mid sixties or even lower. Yeah, it's not a disaster. Uh, one of the things that. Um, a lot of academic studies, and I won't bore you with the details here, but I have read some of them, um, is that the floating exchange rate, the fact that the dollar goes up and down, is actually a really good thing. Now, if we were to go to 60, 65 cents mm -hmm. you know, in a year or two on the back of housing weakening and RBA cutting interest rates, it wouldn't be great for our holidays. We'd sort of think, oh, gosh, it's so expensive to travel. But actually, that's exactly what it's designed to do. Mm. We'll have a holiday in Queensland or Tasmania rather yeah. than California or Bali sort of thing. Mm. So the money stays in Australia. And it attracts foreign tourists to Australia because it's as cheap as chips for them to come on holiday yeah. here. Yeah. So the lower dollar <laughs> actually helps our economy. It is a stimulus to our economy if and when it falls. Mm -hmm. And similarly, it's not that long ago, I think it was about seven odd years ago, we are above parity to the US mm. dollar. Remember that? Mm. Remember how cheap it was to go online was and buy all those fabulous. things yeah. and holiday <laughs> all of it? But that's because the iron ore price was $180 a tonne and the coal price was booming. And we had a, rivers of cash flooding into our economy and that bought Aussie dollars and the Aussie dollar went up. And it actually, while it hurt manufacturing and hurt different parts of the economy, it was the, um, what do we call it, the safety valve or the pressure valve that sort of took some of the heat out of the economy when it went up. And similarly, when it goes down, it gives us a bit of a boost. Sort of beautiful, this economic stuff, isn't it? I love it. Yes, <laughs> I do. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I know, but it's funny. I was actually listening to a podcast Who's that American uh, economist, Art Laffer? Oh, Laffer, yes, yeah. yes. The like, Laffer Curve man. Yeah, yes. I was only listening to this the other day and I, was, yes. I actually posted on LinkedIn, you know, I was like completely like a geek. Oh, my God, I'm loving this stuff. I want to go and learn economics. When you hear this sort of stuff, because it does, it kicks into the way people respond to it though, isn't it? I mean, oh, you know, yeah. it's macro, but it, it absolutely becomes micro pretty quickly, doesn't it? Well, every news bulletin has 
um, something to do with economics at the end. Yeah, has the Dow, right. or has the All Ordinaries Index, or the Aussie dollar, or the, or the gold price, or something? Something to do with the economy is almost on every news bulletin. When you stop and actually listen, there's something there about oh, today's retail sales were bad, or house prices were down, or up, or something like that. So we get a lot of economic information, and it mm. does matter to people. This is one of the, one of my passions when I'm talking about the economy. It matters to you and you and everybody else because. The, you, you might think, well, okay, the dollar going from 75 to 70 cents, well, so what? I'm not planning to travel overseas. Mm. However, if you're thinking about how the economy is going to be performing, how our export market might yep. be performing, uh, how uh, that might impact on the RBA setting of interest rates, because if yep. it falls, there's less need to cut interest rates because yep. you get the stimulus to the export sector. Uh, so it, it sort of matters. This little, And the thing that's fascinating is the interlinkages of yeah. parts of the economy. So you pull one lever, something else changes, mm. and you do something else and the budget policy might be impacted by it all. So it's absolutely fascinating. Which does my head in when I hear people who don't know anything about it, and I and I – I don't profess to know anything about it other than trying to absorb as much as I can, but they come out banging on about company tax, one thing, which is mm. one lever effectively, it is. isn't it? And yes. and going on and on and on about one lever or maybe two levers and, and not realising the interrelatedness of it all and how, you know, and obviously the topic today is how it links to the property market, but it's all about behaviours, how we spend. Yeah, and I mean, links people... To yeah, talk about that with the property market all the time, don't they? They don't understand how it all interlinks and they like to simplify it to one market and, you know, it's it so is. connected and economics is all obviously all like that. Yeah, so Cook, you live in um, in Canberra. That's correct. And it's a very, um, it's always lots going on there. Uh, and uh, Well, right. uh, yes, <laughs> to some point there is, yes. Maybe yeah. after dark. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not joking. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, especially in the political world. Oh, indeed, yes, yes. Um, and right now is obviously... You know, it is quite a, a big moment, I guess, for the property market. Um, and it's going to be, a, you know, I guess, depending on what happens in the next six months with the new election, um, you know, could send the property market in two different directions, I guess. What's your thoughts about what's yeah. happening with Labor, Liberal um, and the negative gearing debate? The negative gearing debate is an interesting one. Uh because what Labor's proposing, just to sort of give it a little bit of background, is that they're going to be abolishing negative gearing for established dwellings. So if you're buying an old house uh, somewhere, you cannot negative gear it after they get their legislation through the Senate. Mm. But you can still negative gear a brand new dwelling. So something off the plan or something that's just, just been completed. Mm. So negative gearing isn't going to be uh, abolished completely and it's going to be grandfathered. So if you've got a negatively geared property now, you'll still be able to negative gear it till the day you die sort mm. of thing. So uh, th that's the policy. Now, there's a couple of things that will happen, in my view, once, assuming they win and assuming they get through the Senate. Um, and do you think they'll win the election? Uh, well, they're the hot favourites at the moment. The polls have come out and they're all six to eight to ten points in favour of Labor. So who am I to say they won't? Mm. Um, so, look, it looks likely they will. And they will, as far as Chris Bowen, the shadow treasurer, has been talking, can continue on this path of put these policies mm. through to the Senate. So they're still probably 18 months away by the time the elections come and they write the legislation and get it through right. the parliament. So it's still a little way away. However, there's probably a couple of things that will happen if they get this change through. Because it's grandfathered, and that means that people who have, an, have a uh, negative geared property will be able to keep it after this law comes into play, There'll probably be a few people trying to rush to buy some properties beforehand. So they've actually got a negative geared property. Uh, so there'll probably be a little bit of a bring forward of people buying established dwellings in, in the nice suburban areas and all the rest of it. 
Now, when the rules change, that demand will fall away because everyone who wants a property will have got one. Mm-hmm. And the tax benefits from buying an established negative gear property will no longer be there. Yep. So that market will probably, if not almost certainly, fall away. Mm. Now, what, what Labor is also planning by, uh, by keeping the negative gearing rules open to new dwellings is that one of the issues, and I think you roughly touched on about supply and demand for housing, yeah, we need to build more houses if we've got this very strong immigration inflow, mm. is that they want to uh, address the affordability issue by having the supply side addressed. That is, build more houses. You know, we know that immigration is going to stay pretty high for the next few years. Uh, at the moment, we're getting an extra million people in Australia every three years or so. So in 10 years' time, we're going to have another three, three and a half million people. They've got to live somewhere, so we need to build a lot of houses. Mm. Uh, so th- the policy to allow negative gearing is that people can still negative gear, but you'll have to buy a brand new dwelling. So I can see it now. I can see after this all comes in, smart property developers, and there are plenty of them around, will probably say, this is negative gearing eligible. Buy this property, this mm. brand new off the plan whiz bang yeah. apartment, because it's negative gearing, uh, it qualifies for negative gearing. And people who still want to use that uh, approach to manage their tax affairs will probably do so. So we're probably going to get a, a rebound in uh, new construction activity in a couple of years' time. So mm. that's the plan. So established dwellings get a bit of a actually get a bit of a boost, funnily enough, before the yep. rules come into play, then they'll fall away. New dwellings probably will fall away because no one's going to be buying them for the moment, but then they'll get a bit of a boost when they change. So it's really just shuffling the the consumer preference or the investor preference uh, away from established towards new new dwellings, newly built dwellings. Yeah, and, um, you know, from your understanding, is this something that Labor's going to continue with and there are no, no plans to kind of change or...? Not at this heard? stage, no. I, th- I think they're going to go ahead with it. They, they, they see it. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is the affordability one that I mentioned. The other one is that this tax change uh, gives them uh, – it's, it's, it's a revenue measure. <laughs> they're going to be collecting uh, in the first couple of years uh, just a few hundred million, which isn't much in the scheme of a federal budget. But by uh, five years after this thing comes into play, if I remember the numbers correctly, it's something between three and a half and four billion a year in terms of changes to the revenue base. Isn't and that's that... a lot of money, particularly when they've got as their projects education, health and those sorts of things. So it's actually a revenue measure as well as a housing affordability measure. Except that if nobody's buying the non-brand new properties post-legislation in order to invest, they're not going to get any more revenue. No, but it's, it's, a, it's a tax deduction, but they can't get the... So no, so the existing tax deductions will be there. That's why in the first couple of years there's not much revenue from it because mm. people will still be claiming their tax deductions. But the fact that there are 100,000 properties bought each year currently mm. for negative gearing purposes... Assuming the following year there are a big fat zero, <laughs> the tax deductions from high income earners who inevitably buy, well, mm. usually buy our investment properties will be nothing. So it's actually a tax saving. It's a tax offset. It's not that they're actually going to be collecting more tax. <laughs> it's the ability of people to deduct tax is no longer there. Oh, right. So the tax deduction's taken away. Yet another So lever. the charitable status, if you want to be unkind, the charitable status to investing in established dwellings will no longer be there. And that's what saves the government mm. money. So when you fill in your tax return, at the moment, with an established dwelling, you claim five grand a year, whatever it is, mm. on your on your losses, if you like. When this rule comes into place, it's nothing. And that's the saving to the government. It gives them, particularly in five, six, seven years, 
three to three and a half to four billion per annum which is what they want to use to fund their uh, policy decisions that they've already announced on on education and uh, healthcare and these sorts of things. So they've done their modelling on the presumption that all these people that would otherwise buy property won't buy it. Correct. <laughs> or, if, yeah. or if they do, oh, look, you can, still, buy, you can still buy an established dwelling. You can still buy it, but you just can't negative gear it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's, the, that's the thing. That's the issue. The problem you have is that a lot of established dwellings, their yield... Um, versus the interest on the mortgage, there's a big shortfall. And, um, you know, and, and if for a lot of some areas of established dwelling, there's, they're bought mainly by investors. And so investors will look at them post this negative gearing change and say, well, I can't really afford that shortfall unless the rents go up a lot or the value of the property falls. And I guess I'm just a bit worried, I guess, with, with, with Labor, you can win an election, but then do you then get in and then crash the economy because you, you know, you crash parts of the property market? Oh, I, don't, I don't think it would crash the economy. So what, a couple of the things that would happen there is, is of course, uh, it was a bit like when the GST was introduced 17 years ago, 18 years ago it was, sorry. Um, mm. I'm old enough to remember that. There was a shuffle in how people spent their money and adjusted their money. So before the GST came in, the, sort of like the six months beforehand, there was a big run-up in spending. People bought stuff mm. before their price of it went up because of the GST. The next six months, it fell away sharply. But it was obvious why it happened. So mm. it didn't crash the economy. So the Reserve Bank and Treasury, who monitor the economy and have policies to uh, deal with, exactly these sort of things, said, well, look, uh, we, we know what's going on. We know, we know why retail sales are booming ahead of the GST coming in, but we're not going to hike interest rates because we know the day after the, the GST comes in, it's going to fall away. Mm. I can imagine a similar thing happening here. The RBA and Treasury would probably have to put out a lot of um, uh, research and uh, on what the effect is going to be. A little bit like when the carbon price came in. Yep. There was an effect on the, on the inflation rate. Of course, the price of electricity yep. went up, but they didn't hike interest rates because there was a, the carbon tax came into place. Yep. So these, occasionally there's these funny, poli- well, not funny, there's these policy changes that happen out of Canberra. Yep. Um, they do impact on the economy. Yes, there's no question. There will be a change in spending patterns and investment patterns, but they're not going to, inverted commas, crash the economy. And if it were to be a bit weaker than expected, well, that puts the bias on lower interest rates. So they'll stay lower for longer or could even be cut. Who, who knows, in, in two years' time. So with, with the idea, and I've heard a lot of politicians say this, that the answer to affordability is build more. Yes. Um, do they specify what should be built? Yeah, look, they the, the, the short answer to that is yes, it does build more does work. Um, if we were to just sort of have a an ability to sort of magically create half a million yeah. houses around the country, we'd have gee, mm. no problems with uh, allowing the uh, population growth or absorbing the population increase. Now, the problem is people want to live in particular parts of each major city, near the CBD, near work, near a train line, yep. near nice things to do. And that's why the prices of those properties are very, very expensive. Mm. And once you go out into the outer suburbs, you know, an hour away or half an hour away, without a train, without a school, without you know, means to get there, the prices are cheap. Yeah. So there's that. Now, the what issue about the for, apartment yeah, side of things? Well, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. Sydney and Melbourne, which I, I don't want to not focus on the other cities. They are very, very important too. But mm. Sydney and Melbourne, where the biggest pressures are, I think, and the biggest yep. population inflows are, they're not very densely built. Um, there's been a lot of work done on property density. That is the number of people living per square kilometre, if you like. Um, we're not, we've got 
still got a lot of houses with a quarter acre of land. Or we've got low-rise apartments, just a couple of storeys, or townhouses, two storeys or something like that. And I'm not saying we bulldoze the parkland, but we're not uh, as dense. If you've ever been to Tokyo or Manhattan in New York or London, there's yep. yeah the population density is incredible there. They fit lots and lots of people. Hong Kong, gosh, lots of people on a very short space. Now, I'm mm-hmm. not saying we necessarily go down that path, but the other issue is building places where people want to live and given that we can't build out because all the land's taken it is building up so we're seeing that in melbourne a lot of the high-rise apartments that have been built around in and around south melbourne and the cbd Docklands, all that stuff in years gone by brisbane they've been doing that a lot (laughs) yeah because people do want to live in the city so i think the solution so the supply side is not necessarily to build build our houses out two hours from the city no one's really want to live live there and you're not going to solve the problem that way. It's building them close to the city, so rezoning the old factories, turning them into apartments and, uh, and that sort of thing. That's that's what's got to happen because it's happened in, in those other big cities around the world that we've just mentioned. But then there's another issue with that because then you've got a situation, say, in Melbourne, where there's oversupply of apartments. Yes. Well, and we're talking but, in those very areas yeah, that we're just talking in, indeed, about. Indeed, and that's why prices are falling right now because mm. there are too many houses for the underlying population demand. So yeah. supply, I love it when economics works. Mm. Supply and demand, there's too much supply for demand, yeah. prices fall. Exactly, it's working. I'll, I'll but, chuck something yeah. in there. And I, I don't yeah. know how much of um, this you're afraid with, but part of the problem is that they're building the wrong type of apartment. So silly investors who go for this negative gearing palaver and buy for negative gearing, go and buy a two-bedroom apartment because it makes sense. Because it does, doesn't it? You two bedroom, two bathroom and couples can share it and all that sort of stuff. It makes perfect logical sense. But the thing is that families also sometimes want to live in these and families really struggle to find family-sized apartments. And then, and that's why I think you get areas of oversupply and buildings that are oversupplied because they've actually got the makeup of what's in there has been developed by or made up by developers or carved up by developers based on their maximum return per, you know, per dollar, per square metre. Well, that might be that if, if you're a clever uh, property developer, you build four-bedroom apartments. Uh, yeah. Again, they exist in New York and London and mm. all these other cities that we're just talking about. That's uh, So, again, you're quite right that it is, it is uh, yeah, the one-bedders, two-bedders, those sort of things. There's there's a gazillion Lethers. of them around. There's a lot of them. But if, you, if you've got a family and you do want to live in the city, like they do in Manhattan, get a three- and four-bedroom one. I think that, of course, they're going to be more expensive, but... Um, there's there is a strong demand for that sort of house or dwelling as uh, as there are for the smaller ones too. So I think that I'd like to think that gosh, I, I like market forces. I think they sort of work. So mm. if people sort of all of a sudden put up their hands yeah. and start demanding them, uh, a shrewd property developer would start building more of them. So and herein lies yeah. the problem. The problem is that, and, and I think the labour policy feeds into this because basically by saying that only brand new properties will attract negative gearing, will get negative gearing. Therefore, developers are going to continue to develop property that investors will buy and then they buy it. Then they're stuck with it because then they they discover the truth. Oh, there's loads of two-bedroom apartments, therefore the tenants, it comes back to supply and demand. You're not getting the rent that I expected. And there's no secondary market because I can't sell to another investor because the investor won't get negative gearing and I can't sell to a family. Because the house is now established. It's now old. Exactly. And I can't sell to a family because it's only two Two bedrooms. bedrooms. Yeah, I mean, that's the big point, I think, where the labour policy is kind of missing the point. I agree. It's great. You know, you get people to buy new, you know, new 
property and et cetera. But from a developer's point of view, it's much easier to sell a $600,000 one better studio than selling a three bedroom, four bedroom house at, you know, 1.2 million. Sure. And so what a develop what investors are going to do, they're going to think, well, if I buy something at 600,000, it's much lower risk than spending 1.2. And so I'll buy two. And so, you know, you're more likely investors are just going to go and basically buy one and two bedroom apartments. And we're just going to kind of self-perpetuate this, you know, keep building more and more one, two betters, more and more one, two betters. And really what we want to be building from a supply point of view is three beds, four beds. And yeah, I just don't see investors wanting to spend that much money. But maybe it's the owner occupiers will just step up to the plate with the three and four betters. Maybe they're yeah. the ones that will be the ones that drive it. Because I think the negative gearing issue will be, will be seen to People will pull away, I'm sure. And with house prices already falling, and as you touched on, mm. yeah, the rental yield being pretty poor at the minute and yep. uh, harder to get credit from the banks and all these other issues that are prevailing right now, even before this uh, negative gearing changes uh, come, into, come into play, obviously. You've got this scenario where I think you're going to get a lot of confusion and people just staying away yeah. from the market regardless. Mm. So the question is, will owner-occupiers step up and fill the void? We've already seen, and just uh, this is slightly different. They can't I, cause, if there's no stock. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So we've got Chicken to build the egg, them. So we need it? to build them. Yeah. But we've already seen, and I, I guess first home buyers tend to buy smaller places as well. But yeah. the last ooh, 18 months or so, partly because of incentives from the state governments in New South Wales and Victoria and I think in Queensland, mm. yeah. uh, but also because prices are down a little bit, uh, that we've actually seen first home buyers stepping up. Yeah. The first home buyer numbers have picked up a little bit. Yeah, you know, they're not they're not booming, but they're certainly higher than they were eighteen months, two years ago. Yeah. So do we get that sort of scenario coming where the ownership things change and people uh, use the improved affordability? Because well, that's yeah, what it's out. all about, and they step up. But again, the point about getting three and four bedroom apartments in a nice area, close to a train line, close to work, and close to nice coffee shops and things like that. Yep. That is important. People want to live like that. So the, the um, and, and, and even to owner-occupy, not just to rent. So the investor market and the owner-occupier market are are quite different. Yeah. I mean, without doubt, the labour policy will increase home ownership and it will slow down, you know, generally the investor market because, yes. you know, for most investors will go, well, I can't buy new because and that's all I can buy is new because that's where I get the tax deduction. I don't want to buy new because I know it's not a great investment. They'll look at established and go, well, I can't really buy any more established that's a quality sometimes because the yield will be there so that the investor market will really back off. And who will pick up the slack there will be a lot of, you know, first home buyers and things like that. And it's, so it's great for people wanting to enter the market over the next five years. And that's what they're trying to do. There will be a few losers like in all scenarios. And a lot of those will be, you know, recent investors who have bought in the last five years and also recent first home buyers. So, you know, if you bought a, a home two, three years ago and you got into the market, you know, these are the people who are already starting to go backwards. So, you know, that's, I guess, my fear there. I mean, the big thing, you know, with all property is all down to population growth. Um, and I'd love to know, like, what a Canberra view is, you know, because I've got a view that, you know, Australia has benefited so much from population growth. You know, our economy is you know, our country is basically, you know, the most successful multicultural in the world. Oh, indeed, yes. Um, but then you've got Gladys kind of coming out last week or this week and saying that she should, she thinks that the Sydney should halve its population growth, which I thought was, you know, quite strange. Yeah. Immigration's like very good red wine. You can have a couple of them and it's fantastic. You have too many, you get a bit of a hangover. <laughs> and I think we've got, and, and that's meant to be a smart way of saying that, um, yeah, 
immigration is is fantastic for our economy, but we've got to do it in a measured way. We've uh, mm. one of the reasons, if you look at the last well, ten years, even of the immigration numbers, they've been very very strong, and we haven't had the infrastructure to keep up with it. I think the I won't speak for Gladys, but uh, I think one of the issues is that we've had the population growth exceed our ability to build roads, public transport, schools and these sorts of things. So in a sense, uh, like a funnel, all these people, mm-hmm. come, we can't get them all into the areas that they want to live in. It's a little bit like the issue people want to live in the right areas of each city. Uh, so I think the question is not that immigration should be cut forever. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. But it's it's like any other policy. You know, interest rates go up a bit and down a bit over over time. Uh, the budget goes into deficit, it goes into surplus, it goes into deficit over many years. Mm. The immigration number, whether it's you know, 200, 250, 300,000, is allowed to be sort of tweaked up, particularly mm. when we've got, if we've got a skill shortage in, uh, in our economy, that we've mm. got a boom in mining, we don't have engineers and all these other people. It's fine. You, you have a bit, bit of an increase in skilled migration, terrific. Mm. But when the economy is a bit weaker and we've got these uh, bottlenecks occurring in in public transport in the cities and house prices are being bid up crazily because of people coming in and there's a shortage of housing. Uh, we've got the concerns that schools are bursting at the seams with so many kids into sort of uh, existing infrastructure in the schools. Mm. Okay, let, let's take a bit of a pause, not to say cut it to zero, but let's just tweak it down a bit for a couple of years. Let the infrastructure build catch up. Mm. In fact, get ahead of the game, ideally. Now, this is my, it'll never happen. I don't think politicians could look that far ahead, but <laughs> you would love to think that let's get some decent infrastructure built mm. around each of the big cities where people want to live and then tweak it back up again. So, yeah, there, I don't say so what's the ideal level of immigration. I'm not sure. Mm. I do know that we've, we do have a, um, a bursting, if you like, of our ability to cope with the number of people here just Go outside and look at the streets of Sydney and Melbourne and the traffic congestion there. Yes. We haven't kept up with it. But does population in, uh, keep our economy going and keep our economy growing? And if, if that's uh, what keeps our prime ministers in jobs, yes. um, is, aren't they severely conflicted to keep allowing foreign investment, to foreign money, keep you know getting out you know overseas students with our universities? Yeah. Like if you start kind of cutting off, you know, you know, cut the. Like, Forget the saying. What's when you basically kill the goose that lays a golden you bite egg? off the hand that feeds you. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's yeah. it. I think that might yeah. be the one. Yes. If you, you know, if you start yeah. biting off the hand that feeds yeah. you, I, I kind of feel like you know, if you were a prime minister, you want you, you know, you're going to get measured on success of the economy, and a lot of that comes down to population growth. It does, and no, you're spot on. That population growth. People come here and they eat, they work, they do things, they spend in the grocery shops, they keep the economy going. Indeed, they do. The, so the the question there is, and there's been a little bit of it, I suppose, in Queensland, here in New South Wales and also Victoria at the state government level, because state governments are the main ones that drive the infrastructure spend, even though the Commonwealth government give them some money to fund it. But I, I think the issue's got to be that we do need to have a bit of a rethink on all these sorts of things and spend money on infrastructure. Uh, so things like the rail system, are important. Things like roads are important. And even things like the second airport out here in uh, Sydney, that's really important. You think, well, I'm not going to fly very much, but it's actually allowing business people to come and go, tourists to come and go. It's a freight uh, mm. system, particularly if we're uh, growing more fresh 
fruit to send over to uh, well, I don't know where we're going to grow Asia. it because well, yeah maybe <laughs> that's the issue but yeah but we need that sort of infrastructure mm. and we need to build the schools mm. and make sure that we've got enough classrooms and there's also human capital infrastructure if that doesn't sound too uh, wanky but anyway but it's also making sure that we've got teachers to teach the kids yeah. so yeah. all these people come in and we're not spending money on training teachers and things like that so the whole so this is again the interlinkages in economics mm. you know sure we have a big influx influx of immigration Terrific. You're quite right that it mm. does add to growth, it adds to the economy. But if you haven't built the infrastructure, you haven't built the houses for them to live in, mm. for whatever reason, politically too difficult or whatever, uh, you do run into these constraints. So, th so I would say, and I do love it when any government says we're going to spend some money on, well, on the right infrastructure. So those sorts of things that get people around to home, to the job, to the schools and these sorts of things, that's really important to so what do you think of this this sort of latest talk? In fact, comes and goes quite regularly about, well, the migrants can come. They just shouldn't be able to go into Sydney and Melbourne. They should have to go uh, into regional yeah. areas. <laughs> you can understand why that happens because you know, oh, a, ha a, a house in Wagga Wagga is a <laughs> fair bit cheaper than mm. in uh, Camaray or somewhere mm. like that. Yes. So, uh, and, mm. you know, I can understand it, but you, they need to go there to do something again. There's no if there's no jobs there or there's no schools there for their kids mm. or those sorts of things, then it's really difficult. So yeah, so what, it makes perfect sense why they don't go there. Indeed. But, so but, so but it's look, chicken I, and the egg, though, isn't it? So it who is. who then decides, okay, there's a regional centre, we want to actually build the population in that, in that uh, area. Who then st sets the ball rolling? I'll give you a little example, one that I have, uh, do like, and I honestly can't remember which side of politics came up with it because it doesn't really matter. But when, uh, you know, the, the, it was the Medicare call centre at the time, it's probably my gov now, yep. but the Medicare call centre, they needed to build one because people ring up with their Medicare claims, you know. So rather than doing it in the middle of Sydney or in Parramatta or in the middle of Melbourne or even Canberra, they set it up in Launceston in Tasmania. Yep. I think if, if my memory is correct, don't quote me on this, but they employed something like 400 people directly in the call centre to help people with their Medicare yeah. forms. Fantastic. It created 400 jobs in Launceston. The secondary jobs were huge. People went down there with their partners and their kids and whatever. So it created um, a scenario where an otherwise problematic city like Launceston wasn't doing well, yeah. um, got a real boost. The people who went there got a good job. They bought houses that were cheap as chips and had a good lifestyle. So it was one of those sort of things. So it can be done through those sorts of means, although there's only a limit to how much you can do with uh, governments. It's really got to be the private sector. So why does a private sector company set up in mm. in Tamworth or in Bendigo or somewhere like that? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's they? the point. When I was um, <laughs> in Melbourne, living in Melbourne, you know, TAC, you know, they moved from Melbourne, which is a uh, you know, if you get injured in a car accident, they move to Geelong, right? And then they yeah, yeah. create a whole lot of jobs there. But if, you know, if that's the government, great. You know, it's it's easy to do. You know, you move the ATO office or you move Centrelink or, you know, you can keep going. But, you yeah. know, if the big tech companies or the big banks don't want to open up head offices and, you know, move to these places, you, you kind of, the government's kind of trying to drive a new economy. And it, it unfortunately, they're also jobs that generally don't pay you know, extremely high salaries. So you don't even get a kind of a kicker like a mining town where everyone's earning a lot of money. Yeah, so again, it's, it's how do you get the private sector to set up there. So you've really, uh, one, one way you can do it, uh, and it needs to be thought of carefully, is sort of tax breaks. You hmm. give a sort of a, I think it's called a tax treaty. So if your company, XYZ, whatever you happen to be, and you go to the government, the state government, say, look, I'm going to employ a 1,000 people I want to set up in a regional centre, 
there is there is a case uh, carefully done for them to get a, a company tax break or a payroll tax break, something like that, so that they're actually setting up something outside the CBD areas which are congested and crowded and uh, that that can work. And again, I used with my old job, I used to travel around the US a lot. And again, there's a country roughly the same geographic size as Australia with 310 or 20 million people now, <laughs> massive. But they've got cities of half a million, a million, two million dotted all through the place. Mm. How do they do it? You know, so yeah. there's a question, I, you know, obviously they've got a bit different history and all the rest of it, but they've got cities in the middle of nowhere sort of thing. Mm. Well, what, we, what we would consider <laughs> the middle of nowhere mm. in Australia yeah. um, that are fully functioning with air, you know, again, it's transport. You've got to be able to get there quickly. So you know, I know this is maybe outside your area of expertise, but I've always wondered. I mean, it's 200 years older than Australia, right? How the hell did they get that many more people there and that many more cities? I don't know Does the anyone answer know to that. that. <laughs> I don't know. But they've got 320 and we've only got 25. Yeah, million. I yeah, know. Yeah. But well. we're, apparently, we're apparently full here, so, um, you know, we can't grow too fast. We've got to build our infrastructure. See, well, if, mm. I, can just, if I can just butt in there, because this is an interesting thing. Australia could have a population of, I won't say 320, because that's a bit scary, 320 million. But if, if we built uh, enough towns and enough businesses and enough infrastructure, we can cope with any number. It's not mm. a, Land's not the problem. Um, Isn't water it, the problem? Build desalination or something. You, you can just do it. Oh, we've got a big plan. They do plan. it in Singapore. Singapore's got no water and they just <laughs> do something with we've their a, water. Haven't we got a big plant off Sydney that doesn't that's get used? Get, really yeah, gets used. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's one we're in Melbourne as well. Yeah. One in Melbourne. But, yeah, we can, we can do it. How, how do they get water in the desert in the US? I must say I don't know. But, yeah. Maybe yeah, they, I know. I mean, that's they, it. they do. just what? do it. And that in Las itself Vegas creates in the desert, jobs. right? That in itself creates jobs. So there's, mm. there's this whole scenario. But they've got a lot of mining, you know, like Dallas and Houston in Texas, of oil. course, are all linked to oil. Mm. Of course they are. But they've now become centres in their own right as well. They're, they're of, um, expanding too. So there's this question of well, how many people can be in Australia. Well, it's sort of any number as long as you've got yeah. the infrastructure yeah. to look after them. Yeah, I can see Queensland and Brisbane is obviously the next choice to kind of go from you know, two and a half to roughly four or five million. Um, and I guess it's head offices can now start to think, well, you know, a lot of what setting up an office is staffing uh, and offices and office rents are a lot cheaper in Brisbane as they are in Sydney, Melbourne. You know, they're after a huge commercial run, you know, it's crazy what you pay for an office rent in Sydney. And if you're going to grow a business from, let's say, to 100 staff, um, you know, you've got to a, get the office, but then you've got to pay them. And if you were going to think about starting that in Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane at the moment, Brisbane makes a pretty good bet because, you know, your salary is, a, you know, quite a lot lower and people don't demand as much because their housing is much cheaper. And so, you know, you can kind of see that naturally people, businesses should you know, go up there, but maybe it's a bit of a, you know, a chicken and egg, you know. It's the incentive of getting skilled staff, yeah. And when you think mm. about how the other part of the economy is changing, and I think you touched on this with uh, high-skilled, high-paying sort of jobs mm. um, being important part of how uh, an economy can be, can be developing, is that you, you want to get the talent, if you like, to go and work there. Yeah. So you need an incentive to go and work there. So why would I, not me personally, but... Uh, go and work somewhere uh, that isn't qu- maybe quite as nice as Sydney or Melbourne. Mm. Um, if I, and I'm well, it get, hasn't get, got get the status to, attached to it well. That, as at, well. The, at the moment, mm. it doesn't have the status. I think that's an important thing. So mm. uh, the, the question is how do you encourage that to happen? And, again, it can occur through uh, government policy directing money to the 
poor estates. And in fact, this is the interesting thing about, you know, there's, there's, you might have heard about all the Grants Commission stuff, which does allocate GST money between the states. Mm. WA's been doing pretty tough the last couple of years, that sort of thing. But through that mechanism, among any others that you can choose, the government could say, we're going to actually allocate a lot of money to Northern Territory or somewhere like that, I, you know, mm. to really get that part of the economy growing. It's, it's, it, it can work. And the other, and the sort of link to this is the, your concept, which again is an interesting one. You know, it requires a lot of public sector money. The food bowl of, a, mm. of, the, of Asia being in the northern part of Australia, which has almost got nothing there other than lots of rain and crocodiles. So it's sort of perfect for growing stuff. But again, there's no roads, there's no planes, there's no nothing. So you might grow the world's best mangoes, avocados and whatever else grows up there, but you can't get them to market. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where this whole, and how do you get people to go and live there when there's nothing there at the moment? Mm. So the question is, how do you start it? How do you get someone to sort of say, I'm going to, you, so you build the roads and you get someone to set up your massive um, mango exports or whatever they happen to be mm. and sell and fly them all to Asia, fresh and expensive. And mm. uh, so it can be done, but it, it, the, the problem politically is that it's really expensive. Mm. It does cost a lot of money and the short-term rewards are nothing. It takes many years to actually get some reward now, political yeah. cycles way too short for that to happen. You just answered the question. What about Adelaide though? Because Adelaide has, has you know, attracted quite a bit of investment from from industry. Yeah, Adelaide's doing well. You know, it's it's market. Well, it it sort of seems to be rather stable. It doesn't have the booms or the busts. Mm. Um, they've got tourism uh, as as a really important part of what they're doing. Uh, they've got the sort of wine industry. That's a courtesy of all those wineries. Yeah, and, and, and other agriculture <laughs> and, and the mm. like. They're, they're they're doing okay. Um, and they've got links to the mining sector. I think Santos and other big companies are yep. got their headquarters there too. So uh, that that's part of the part of the deal though. But again. It's on the way to nowhere because even further out is Perth sort of thing. So it's not a thoroughfare. Mm. Coming from Canberra, as we just mentioned, one of the interesting things about Canberra is that it's growing really strongly mm. and it's not public servants because the government's not hiring more public servants. Again, it's linked to these other things that we, um, you know, well-off Australians are, are demanding, services. It's related to the uh, education. You know, the two universities in Canberra, yep. I believe, have something like 45,000 people. Canberra's only got 400,000. Wow. Ten, more than 10% is just uni students. Tourism is doing ex remarkably well. Everyone's just, we've just had Floriade with all those gorgeous flowers and things. Uh, and the <laughs> and this is not an ad for Canberra, but the gallery's got the, a fantastic Roman exhibition from mm. the... Um, uh, from the British Museum. So, Apparently there's 30 wineries within half an hour too. Well, I've been to probably 25 <laughs> of them, yes, and they're, and they're mighty fine too. So, but again, but it's it's on the way to somewhere. If you're mm. if you're a Sydney side, it's only a couple of hours on that nice freeway to, to go there. On the way well, to Yeah, snow. have a couple of days mm. in Canberra on your way or something like that. Uh, so it's those sort of things. It's sort of, you've, you've got to build it on the way to somewhere. So Adelaide, yes, but it's sort of, it's at the end of the line. Mm. It's you, a destination in itself. It is. Yeah. It's a yeah. place to travel, not yeah. on the way to somewhere. Mm. Whereas even parts of, um, you know, the central coast and the south coast of New South Wales, as you get into Victoria and then in central Victoria, there's lots of lovely little towns and mm. cities there that are worth a look. So one of my, um, I guess, call, call it a conspiracy, is that the Australian government um, 
you know, is all for higher house prices. They they really like us when we've got, you know, higher house prices. Um, you know, it's more tax revenue. Um, it's more CGT. It's more stamp duty. Um, it's land more tax. land tax. It's more rates. Um, you can keep on going on how much the Australian government is in on high property prices. Um, and I, I, I guess it's, what's your view on what's the, you know, because you've worked in the governments, you know, do they really care about, you know, reducing house prices or do they really just want things to level off now? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, first home buyers start entering the market and they're not as disgruntled. Um, and then well, as soon as that's kind of gets through, then they want to keep pushing them up again. No, I don't, I don't think they want high house prices. I think what they would like having seen this boom of, well, you could say the boom has been over the last 10 years. It's actually been the last 30 years mm. with a few little hiccups along the way. But if you look at any chart of house prices, mm. it's been stunning since... I think the late 80s, mm-hmm. how many years ago that is, 30 years. Yeah. They, I don't think they want prices to fall. What Again, if you could wave your policy wand, mm. <laughs> what you'd probably want to see is house prices in dollar terms staying broadly flat for five or more years. Mm. That would allow affordability to improve. So even in an era of low wages growth, mm. the wages growth are a little bit over 2%. So if we do, and, well, that, that's pretty low. Let's hope or assume that they go up to say 25 or 3%. Mm. So in five years' time, with no change in house prices, wages will be up 15%. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, your affordability has improved on that measure mm-hmm. quite a lot. So they want, uh, and they do want people to own their own homes, not, they don't make it quite as explicit because that sort of seemed to be a bit politically. Um, incorrect for people who don't own their own homes, so they mm. try not to say that too much. But they just want affordability to improve because people still want to buy a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, buying your own home is tax-free. That's the other thing that will never, ever happen, that uh, it's capital gains tax-free when you buy your own house to live in mm. uh, and every renovation you do to it is money that you earn money on as the price yep. goes up. As so, long as they go up. Well, as long <laughs> as they go up. But so, but I think ideally they just want to see prices consolidate. They want to see affordability improve. Mm. And the best, way to do, the best way to do that is have prices being broadly stable rather than falling. Because as we said at the, at the early part, um, if prices were to drop 20%, people say, yay, affordability is all of a sudden way better. However, the people who bought at the top are underwater. They're... they're unemployed, the banks who lent them the money are saying, well, we're not going to lend any money because we've got such a dreadful problem on our uh, balance sheet. So we actually do get a hard landing for the economy. So ideally, I said the magic wand, just stable. Small falls are okay, you know, a couple of percent a year, that's okay, mm. as long as it's orderly. Uh, and it's really the, the government's sort of uh, want to, to improve affordability through that means rather than crashing the market. Look, they of course, when prices go up, they collect bucket loads of revenue, <laughs> they, mm. they do. Uh, but I think that's sort of, uh, they'd be willing to forgo that if it, if we could get high, uh, affordability and ownership rates back up over the next five years or so. So that's interesting, is it? Because also, you know, part of the issue at the moment is everybody sitting on their hands waiting for the crash to continue and, or, or happen, depending on your, uh, your, yes. your words, uh, your, your phraseology. Um, because if they were going to fall 20%, well, nobody would be buying anyway, which is why they'd be falling 20%. But you did mention earlier on that they've still got some more to run. So just elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, look, I think we've only just seen the start of the fallout of the Royal Commission issues. Yeah. And the tightening of credit. Uh, 
uh, and and even a realization that prices are falling. It took a while for people to recognize it because again, over over time, you occasionally see two or three months where prices drop one percent. Yeah, whoop de doo as they yeah, say. It, do, yeah. it doesn't matter, and people sort of shrug it off. It doesn't matter. But now, I think according to the core logic numbers, yep. uh, they've dropped twelve consecutive months, and the fall in that period in Sydney is, I think, about six percent. Yeah, Melbourne, it's about four, four and a half. Well, Perth is about twelve or thirteen percent. That's been smacked really badly. Mm. So you've had some big falls, and I think that's now feeding, feeding into people's thought processes. So I think as you touched on, the first home buyers sort of thinking, well, I've saved my deposit and finally they're falling, but they've got further to run. Mm. I'm not going to step yeah. up yet. I'm going to just hold back and if I keep my job and I've got my deposit, even though I'm earning a rotten interest rate on my deposit, I've got my cash, I've got my approval of my loan, I'm ready to go, but I'm going to hold off. Mm. So of course, for the sellers, for the people trying to sell, they're still probably got the mindset, oh, my house is really worth a million, not 900, so I'm not going to drop my price. Um, and they're going to have a reality check of whether they just have to take a lower offer rather mm. than sort of holding out for the higher prices, which probably aren't there. So I think that you've got this a bit of a Mexican standoff. The bidders, and we're seeing this from the very low auction yep. clearance rates, the bidders aren't really stepping up. The vendors aren't dropping their price. And, of course, by definition, that's how you get the falling auction clearance rates. Yeah. Now, nine times out of ten, that resolves itself with prices falling, not with vendors all of a sudden realising that they're going to have to bid a higher price. So I think that's the correction in prices that's still that's still unfolding and still has, well, I don't know, six, six months, nine months, 12 months even, to mm. go at least, and then we'll revisit it once we get past the election result, which we've already touched on. Yeah, and the Royal Commission, I 100% agree. It's uh, We don't know anything about the Royal Commission yet. It still hasn't finished, you know. And, oh, um, yes, yes. You know, and so we've got a couple of months till the you know CEOs are going to get grilled one by one, um, and uh, that's going to be quite hilarious to watch. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> you know, you, you get paid 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 billion, uh, million dollars a year. Um, you know, you're going to have to go through a few stressful days to, um, you know, to, to talk it through. Um, but there's, without doubt, a Royal Commission doesn't happen every year. You know, a Royal Commission of the banking was called upon for years and years and finally it happened. And, you know, we can't just go in 2019, there has to be some recommendations and those recommendations have to be implemented because the Australian public are going to say, well, hang on a sec, what was that? It was just all fast. Um, and one of the recommendations out of that, I believe, is that banks will have to verify, you know, consumers' spending um, when they're doing loan applications. Well, they already do now as, well, a, as, a, as a consequence, don't they? Yeah, so only really since June. Uh, as in just. I mean, just, <laughs> yeah. Were, wasn't it legislated? That's why you haven't seen the impact on prices Correct. yet. Correct. Or yeah. credit growth. But wasn't yeah. it legislated anyway and then they just weren't doing it? And yeah, now they're so, actually being told, actually, you know, there is a law in place, guys. You're actually meant to follow it? Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> fundamentally, you know, loans have been, you know, approved, you know, all over the country from banks, you know, from brokers um, and minimum living expenses was a pretty, you know, standard way that most loans were, were approved or expenses a bit above the minimum living expenses. And, you know, the bank wasn't really doing anything to kind of really check whether that was actually real or not. And going forward, that won't be enough. And so, you know, and that one of the big things I, I feel coming out of the Royal Commission is they're shifting the responsibility away from the borrower which is where all, you know, if you default on your loan, you lose your house, you lose your money. And they're shifting that back onto the bank to say, look, if you haven't verified their situation and you haven't verified their spending, 
then you know you you you're actually to blame a little bit here because you lent them the money, and that's scaring the hell out of the banks. And so I think with this royal commission um, next year, I 100% agree that it's it is quite worrying. Um, I guess the other thing that's a little bit worrying, um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on. We've just had a, another recent sell-off of the stock markets um, uh, here. You know. U.S. is down, you know, 10% over a week, roughly, you know, U.S., you know, China, et cetera. Um, and we've had basically the longest bull run of all time. You know, it was March 2009. I actually had a client invest on the absolute bottom of the market. I remember oh, it. Oh, lucky devil uh, <laughs> And, um, you know, it was fear on the streets. And, you know, I remember it clear as a day. Um, it was only 25,000 pounds I was working in London like you. Um, but, yeah, it's been 10 years since then. And, you know, at some point, you know, stock market corrections happen. How would that kind of impact us in Australia? And Because we kind of got through the GFC, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Look, our stock market has massively underperformed just about every other one. Mm. So we haven't quite had the boom. But we, but interestingly, in the last two months, our market, I was checking uh, just this morning, was down about 7% in two mm. months. That's like chunky. That's that's not, not insignificant. It's part of this wealth effect again. Um, not that we usually have lots of money tied up in stocks that you can get your hands on mm. easily. It's in our superannuation and things like that. But nonetheless, that the, the wealth effect, when people sort of see the fact that their super balance has gone down, yep. not up, they'll sort of say, oh, I was, I was going to be retiring in five or ten years. I don't have enough money in there because the market's... So one of two things happen. They either say, well, I'll just be careful and I'll put some more money into my own savings now or add it to the super balance if they can do that. So uh, that means less spending in the economy. That's that's an important part of it. Or they'll, or they'll sort of say that, well, hang on, I've got to have to work for more, more years mm. uh, because of this, and you actually get a, a more cautious approach to consumer spending because of that. So the link between wealth and spending is, is clear, whether it's house mm. prices, which mm. uh, you don't buy and sell your own house every day of the week, nor with your stocks, but you sort of see but the effect. perception. The perception mm. there. And there is a real effect for people who do actually um, make their money from stocks and dividends, which is another part of the Labor policy, just by the way, if I can bring in the change to dividend imputation yes. refunds. Yes. bit messy and a bit complex, mm. but basically... Uh, that means that the incredible, incredibly generous, I suppose, um, tax treatment of fully franked dividend payments yep. will be scaled back. It's not eliminated. It's just scaled back so you don't get a refund. You can still claim losses. But um, it also means that one of the things that I'm thinking about is that in a couple of years' time, if, if, if these policy changes come through, our friends in financial planning will have to do a serious rethink about how they structure their advice. At the moment, and in years gone by, someone on a decent income, let's say, um, you went to your financial planner, they said, well, negative gear a house, um, put your money into shares that pay fully frank dividends, and you're laughing. And that was a great strategy. It, it pretty much worked um, with house prices booming and the, the tax credits you got from fully frank dividends. If both of those things change, and if you're a financial planner, what are you going to be telling your clients? I'm not sure what the answer is here either. Mm. But you know, So what are you going to be telling your clients? Because the, the attractiveness of negative gearing, as we've just touched on, is linked and limited yep. to new dwellings. Mm. So that's changed. Yep. Uh, your advice on sort of buying the fully frank dividend shares, that's changed somewhat. It's still, yep. still a benefit of doing it, but and not quite as chunky. too, right? Yeah. And now mm. with the stock market falling, yep. you've got all this, well, what are you going to do with your money? So is it global shares? Is it international bonds? Is it 
I don't know, commercial property? Is yeah. it, we're going to see quite a different um, uh, oh, investment climate yeah, for, for I mean, individuals, even SMFs, mm, sorry, super funds. Um, SMFs. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. Um, but it's, it's going to be quite a different environment where people put their money. And so the financial planners who are agile, quick to think of new strategies for people, for their clients to put money, not just the good old-fashioned negative gearing and fully frank mm. dividends, they're going to get a real march on their competitors too. Yeah, I mean, probably the advisor numbers will probably be halved by then. Anyway. As well, because of the Royal Commission too. Um, you yeah. know, and we've got uh, increasing education standards coming up as well, where everyone's going to have to have a degree. And uh, a lot of, you know, the average advisor age is, I think, 56. So we've already got a very, you know, older, um, very male-dominated as well, I'll add. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so I think the advisor force just in general has got huge turnover coming up. But the way that we structure advice will 100% have to keep shifting um, because superannuation, it's very limited now. We can only put 25 grand a year in. Mm. Um, and so, you, well, that's one little lever. Other levers, should we buy a property? Well, maybe not, you know. Should we buy some shares? Um, you know, should we pay off the home loan? If, if you can't negative gear a property, and this is where some people forget, is you won't be able to negative gear shares. And that's actually another strategy that, um, you know, is actually a really good strategy as well. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Now, Kook, have you got a property dumbo for us? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. A property dumbo. Um, one thing uh, that... Can I talk about one thing that I've done that was really did that was really bad. You want to be, you want to be the Dumbo? I'm happy to be. It's, it's sort of, it's <laughs> it's postponing a decision to buy a house. Oh, I know yes. that might sound really, really um, oxymoronic <laughs> given just what we've said for this last <laughs> little bit, but delaying buying a house for whatever reason is a really bad thing. In fact, just in the last week or two, um, I was chatting to my lovely sister and I was talking about, do you remember that house in Mossman that we saw, Mossman here in Sydney? Mm. This was Probably in the early 1990s, she was coming with me and my wife. We were looking to buy this place in Mossman. I can't remember the name of the street, but it was 405000 for a four-bedroom house on a big block of land. We could only go to about three hundred and ninety. We couldn't get that last 15000 And so we didn't buy it. We ended up buying something not quite as good. Uh, my guess is that something like that would be worth oh, I don't know, three or four million now. And I busted a boiler to buy that mm. place. Well, wait, hey, other friends, I'm going to hold... Well, this, hang on, this, what this, did this, you buy, though? And what did that do? Well, funnily enough, we, well, uh, we, we bought a place, um, we bought a place in Redfern and it did okay, but then when we wanted to upgrade our house uh, about five years later, it hadn't changed much. So churning property is, I won't say it's a Dumbo thing, but try mm. to hold on to it if you can mm. um, because you look back at the places that you that you could have bought or that you did own and when you're as old as me, you know, mm. 20, 30 years ago, you think, oh, my God, if only I'd held that, if I only had the wherewithal to hold that property, it'd be worth squillions now. And as I was saying, this is the other thing right now. We're sort of saying, oh, people are going to postpone buying because they're trying to find the bottom in the market and that's fine. But you've got to remember also that housing to live in, different to investing, yep. but to live in your, uh, your own occupied house, in my view, should be a 10-plus year time yep. frame. Yep. And that if you don't quite pick the bottom of the market, in 10 years, is Sydney housing going to be worth more than it is today or Melbourne? 
I'll put my, hunch, my money on that. My, yes. hunch is, my hunch is yes, it will be. Mm. Now, what happens in the meantime, I can't be sure. But I've seen a lot of friends probably five years ago say, oh, look, prices are crazy. I'm not going to buy. I'm not going to buy. I'm going to wait. Now, prices went up 60, 70, 80%. And they're still trying to put away a few dollars a week to get their deposit. So if you're buying a house to live in, my, my hunch would be just just do it. Take a deep breath. Close your eyes. Okay, you, you do buy selectively. Don't just throw any money at anything. And if you've got yep. a downturn like now, you can be a bit more choosy mm. or you can be a bit more aggressive with your low ball offers mm. or just something like take that. Take advantage of it. But mm. still buy a house to live in and then you can put picture hooks in. Yeah. You know, you can uh, have a cat. You can, yeah. paint, <laughs> you can, paint, you can paint the wall yeah. purple. You can do whatever you want, whereas if you're renting, you can't do those things. Although with the changes so, of Tenancy well, Act, you, you know, might be the, able to. You do some of those things. But, but look, it, it, so it's, it's buy it, – yeah, don't, don't be too cute mm. trying to finesse when the low point in the cycle is. If mm. you find a house that you like, it is expensive, just take a deep breath, do it. And don't look at the price of anything in your suburb for another 10 years. Yeah. I mean, so if you go back to your Dumbo there, just so if you could have gone back, you said you couldn't stretch to 405. Well, we didn't think we could. So you potentially could, right? So you're. Well, yeah, we didn't want to. Cause, right. Mm, so it wasn't well, that you couldn't. You actually well, put a mental hurdle based yeah, on something that on you. On our wages and how much our interest payments were going to be. And I think. Yeah, we just had our daughter and all this other stuff. And so so you were expensive and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so, so you went ex- a we conservative talked We talked ourselves out. We went very yeah. conservative. We're not going to borrow up. We borrowed to the eyeballs as it was, I think. I can't, I can't yeah. remember the exact numbers. But we were we borrowed a lot of money. Uh, so you still then. went for something around that price, but you went in it Redford. Was, yeah, yeah, I think if I remember gosh, if I remember correctly, we bought in Redford for about three seventy five, dollars which you. was quite expensive for Redford. Yeah, you must have put a pretty good so you house back then. You, if you could go back, you would have either got for the four hundred five, or you would have bought in Mossman for three seventy instead. Like if you, oh, I'd, yeah, I'd have gone the four hundred five <laughs> yeah. with Harry Hindsight. I'd have yeah, gone. Okay. I'd have bank stilled and borrowed another fifteen grand, which at the time was a lot of money. Again, yeah. we're talking early nineties, yeah. um, so I don't know what that is in today's dollar terms. Um, well, the, clear, but, the interest but was, rate's but, probably pretty high. Oh, back oh yeah, then. yeah, yeah, yeah. probably thirteen. Mm. You, you do that stuff, your mortgage yeah, calculator. Yeah. And we thought another fifteen thousand. I can't do that. And, oh my god! You know, so we talked ourselves out of it a bit. A bit. It's a really big um, point, actually, because I help clients try to figure out what should they, you know, what price point should they enter. And I was just literally before today, I was sitting around with the new clients, um, you know, having some lunch, and we're trying to figure out what's too much. And they were coming up with their own figure of what they thought was affordable based on their current rent versus the mortgage. And we did this figure and then what we kind of realized is they were really kind of shopping a lot lower than they probably should based mm. on their incomes, based on what they could save, um, the quality of asset. And they were actually, you know, sacrificing probably a bit too much. And so they were thinking about moving down south. And when we looked at the numbers, you know, and where interest rates are and their deposits and things like that, you know, and their borrowing capacity, we realized, well, actually, you know, you could probably afford a bit more than that. And that ended up when you, Start to look at what the prices and the properties they could get for just a bit more. It completely changed the game. They've gone from yep. down Cronulla to potentially into the inner west. Um, and, you know, they both work in the city and they're like, well, I didn't think that was possible. Um, and so from an mm. asset point of view, and affordability and what price to enter the point to enter the market is actually very confusing. It's very it, it challenging. Is, and it's a really important thing to think about too uh, in, in terms of what you can what you can gain. As we mentioned this in, earlier on, if it's your own house, it's tax-free too. So mm. if you leverage up to the hook yep. for your own house, different for investing where you're vulnerable to interest rates and all those other things. Um, but if it's the own, your own house to live in, you 
you, know, you can make some sacrifices too to make sure that you keep your head above water in that, even in, in difficult times. Although the, only, the other thing about um, your own house, living, if the price drops 10% and you've still got your job, for yeah. example, so what? Yeah. Yeah. It's like if it, if it goes up 10%, so what? You're not going to sell Well, you're not going to sell it. You just might feel a little bit better if it goes up 10 rather than down 10. But at the end of the day, if it's just the house that you're living in and you love it and you're happy to be there and you've got your mm. your cat and your dog and your picture hooks on there, you know, you're going to be you're going to be happy. Cuz there's value in that. And that I think oh, that quite often yes. when we're talking yes. about property prices, we're forgetting that utility, yeah, yeah, the utility and also that sense of place and our own castle and the fact that I like living in my own home and all that sort of stuff. I'm not going to get a, a landlord booting me out in no, two months' notice. I, yeah, I'm not. And I can put a tree in the front and watch it grow and I can do the garden and, I can and make the little barbecue. put the notches in the door, my yeah. kids grow yeah, up. Right. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> all yeah. those things. It, it, mm. the, that non-financial benefit is, is huge. Yeah, too. I mean, is. fundamentally, how many times do we live? We only live once, right? right. And, you know, you can't, no point getting <laughs> to 60 did, yeah. and uh, going, wow, now I can, you know, it's it's, it's a beauty. So yeah. you want to you want to enjoy life and, and home ownership does have a huge part to play in that. And while Credit's harder to get. You know, if you're still a good credit risk, the banks will still lend you the money. And if it's for your own house too and you've got proven income mm. and all these mm. other things, you can still leverage pretty well into mm. that sort of market. Particularly first home buyers who, who do have good incomes and no kids and all that sort of thing. And you mentioned you just had a little one. but um, And I think that that is something that a lot of first home buyers don't do. They don't stretch themselves in situations where they can. I know when I bought my first place, I didn't stretch myself and that meant that I did have to transact up as well and sell in order to upgrade. And, and there are costs associated with that. You know, each time you buy, you add about 5% for the costs and each time you sell, it's about 3% of what you just sold. So those are transaction costs that come out of your ability to put that into your new home. You know, that, that money's gone. So obviously if you can stretch yourself earlier on when you don't have any other responsibilities and you could both work, assuming you're mm. buying with a partner, um, you can both work and squirrel and, and, you know, not go out for breakfast every weekend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to mention what you have on your toast. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, because that pain, it does pale into, into significance after a few years. You go, oh, I don't know what I was so worried about. And, and, even, <laughs> and even if the price does nothing, let's assume the worst case. In 10 years, the price is exactly what you paid for it, which rarely, if ever, happens in mm. Well, cities in Australia, in Australia, it just, just be careful. It, it, but, yeah, <laughs> give what you say. But um, the in that time, if you just get like standard wage increases, you're getting two and a half or three percent a year. Mm. But if you're getting promotions, which aren't captured in these wage numbers, so mm. if you start off as a junior, such and such, and then you get a more senior position, not only are you getting the two or three percent a year, you're actually getting a promotion which pays you more. So that's yep. why in ten years' time. Most people earn 50% more than what they earned yep. 10 years ago. I love that point because... And then all of a sudden your leverage is so much better. Yeah, that's exactly Even what... Even if the house of the price doesn't change $1. Yeah, um, that's exactly what I... So when I'm part of this conversation is with clients is we... Um, they'll say, well, what's the bank repayment? And the bank repayment is, say, $5,000 a month. And I say, well, that's a pretty pointless figure, really, because that's a bank <laughs> That's a bank wanting you to take 30 years to pay this off, and it's going to be the $5,000 if interest rates stay the same, where they can change. Mm. Uh, but that's just paying off on the bank's terms. What we don't want to do is pay it off on your terms, how you want to pay it off. And so what we need to figure out is how much do we need to pay it off more than that $5,000 a month to pay it off over 15 years? And... What we, you know, the way to actually really calculate this, and I had to build my own little calculator for it, is that um, 
once we kind of figure out how much more, let's say it's $6,000 a month, what we do to factor it in is we say, well, what, your wages are going to go up. So, you know, if we say your wages go up 3%, what's $6,000 a month for the next 12 months? And then it's $6,200 a month next year. And then next year it's $6,400 a month. And that then completely changes someone's, you know, affordability because they're not factoring that in. Mm. They're not factoring in their future wages going up. Usually so, and, that, and that's a re- that's a really important part of the affordability issue. Uh, the the only curveball, and that's what happens to interest rates, of course. So yeah, yeah, and, that's, and, and, and we do sensitise them in there as well. And, yeah. yeah, it's been a long while since they've gone up, or well, official rates, even though we saw the banks hiking uh, yeah. out of cycle a month or so ago. Um, yeah, but the it's it's a really important thing that yeah, even though in a low wage climate, wages are still going up, albeit just a bit. Yep. Good reason to actually pay it off early. Yeah. Pay it down. If you can. Yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, a great way to explain that is that you sh- I show clients, well, what are they going to pay off in the first 10 years? And it might be 200,000. And then you go, what are you going to pay off the mortgage in the next 10 years? And it'll be 500,000. Mm. Yes. And what do you pay off in the last 10 years? 700,000. Yeah. So, you know, the quicker you can get off paying off your mortgage, the more it snowballs. And um, yeah, once people- The eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. I know. That in, in reverse. Because yeah. it's in like, reverse, I, yes, I love the right, fact yeah. you pay, yeah. most of what you're paying mm. early on is interest. I mean, I don't yes, love it at all. I yes. hate it, but it's just basic if you look yeah. at that breakdown. It's the maths of it. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, Stephen, that's been fantastic. We have covered off, I think we've gone even over time, but hey, who cares? We probably won't edit anything out of it. And um Really good uh, oversight, well, oversight, not not oversight, insight, overview and insight into what we often don't think about or talk about. And uh, we really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Look forward to the next one. Thank Yay. you, Pete. Cheers. Cheers. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, we talked a lot in this episode about the property market and price falls and how... For, how and how far they've got to run. We also talked about not delaying if you want to buy your own home. So it might be a little bit conflicting for our listeners to try to work out what the hell you should be doing. Now, there's a couple of ways of looking at this, and and I'm going to talk about firstly, owner-occupiers, and secondly, investors. Now, for an owner-occupier, you've got to get on with your life. If you need a bigger home, This is a time to upgrade. If prices are falling, upgrading is actually cheaper for you than if you were to upgrade in a rising market. And that is absolutely simply because if you are buying and selling the same market, the property that you sell is, yes, going to take a fall and the property you buy is going to take a fall. And percentage-wise, that means that you are going to be saving money by upgrading now. Okay, if you need to understand why, Send us an email and we'll send you some workings out just to illustrate that. You do have to be careful, of course, because it's not like if you're selling out of a really buoyant market into a really, really slow market, you can you can catch yourself out. But I'm talking really about if you're upgrading in the same general area. So there's a great opportunity there. But the, absolutely, fundamentally, the thing is we don't all sit on our hands waiting for the market to stop falling or to level off or to start rising again if we need a home. Okay, we do need to get on with our lives. So I just want to encourage you to think that way. But in terms of what do you buy and where do you buy it? Now, one thing that we see over and over again and all the researchers that we've interviewed on this podcast in in previous episodes have all talked about the same sort of thing and that is a flight to quality. And that starts with the location. So if you are buying in a blue chip location, you are buying into an area where there are fewer people that are forced to sell in a downturn. 
And that is usually what protects prices. And so that's why the falls in prices are not as great in blue chip areas as they are in less blue chip, more volatile areas. Now, there's a lot behind all of this, but I just really want to point out that the the general overview that we we're talking about with the, the kook today was really referring at a very macro level. If he's talking about Sydney house prices, for instance, Sydney's a massive big city. You know, we've got 5 million people living here and we've got something like, how many suburbs have we got in Sydney? I mean, how many? We cover like 200 square kilometres or something, Sydney, doesn't it? It's 200 in the in the 10 kilometre ring. Well, there you go. There's 200 in the, in the 10 kilometre ring. We've got a massive amount there. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> we've got a massive amount of of suburbs, a massive amount of locations, a massive amount of places in which you could actually buy your property. So they don't all perform the same. Okay. So I'm just trying to remind you about the flight to quality that we talk about. And we've talked about over many, many episodes on the investor side of things that is equally important, the flight to quality. In fact, more so, because if you are an investor, you shouldn't be buying in a B or C grade location because at the end of the day, they're not great investment locations. Okay. So as an investor, if you can't afford to buy in an area where you are going to get solid capital growth over time, then I challenge you to rethink the idea about investing in property. But if you are a would-be investor and you're thinking, okay, well, this market's tanking, I'm going to wait for the prices to start rising again before I buy, just rest for a minute because think about that. I'm going to wait for prices to rise before I buy. And that's what a lot of people do. We may only have an 18-month window before negative gearing completely and utterly changes. Now, the kook did mention that in that sort of six months before that happens, we're going to see a lot of investors flooding to the market buying existing stock, and that will not be the time to buy. So if you are an investor, if you are thinking that you've got the cash flow, you've got the wherewithal to actually buy in a blue chip area quality asset, then I'd be encouraging you to start to use the next 12 months to do that rather than waiting to see whether A, Labor get in and B, whether they're going to be able to get this through. I still think that there is good opportunity in the market to cherry pick in blue chip areas. So that's the elephant rider training for this week. Once again, if you want to take me on in any of those claims, send us an email. We're happy to engage with you and we look forward to hearing from you. Tune in to our next episode when we interview somebody that is used to interviewing everybody else, Kevin Turner. Kevin Turner is well known in Brisbane for his two-hour real estate talk show, which airs on Saturday afternoons, but he's also had a very, very successful podcast for many years, which is called Real Estate Talk, and he has another one for agents called Real Estate Uncut. Kevin's interviewed me in the past. He's also interviewed pretty much every other property expert in Australia. So we get to ask him what makes the difference between an expert and a spruker. We also get to ask him what advice does he give his kids with regards to property. And also we ask him a lot about who's interested in the Australian property market. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. 
If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.